Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. Uh, welcome this evening, and I think I'm going to start a watch party <laughs> on my wall. Um, there it is. Good. We'll see if that catches a few more folks. So uh, this is our Wednesday evening Bible study. We're, we've been working through 1 Corinthians, and we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So, so glad to have you here this evening. And uh, the praying man's with us too, because uh, I'm at home, <laughs> where I can do this uh, reliably in the evening. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is, is a famous chapter. I can't recall exactly uh, where it's appointed. I know it's in the lectionary, and I think I've read it perhaps at funerals. I'm trying to remember. Uh, but I don't know that I've ever read it actually in context. And we've talked about that quite a bit in our morning daily prayer and also in this Bible class. The context matters. Uh, context helps provide then a framework to understand oh, you know, what was the logic of Paul's argument. Now, that said, uh, a lot of times sayings can be pulled out of context and they have an even broader uh, meaning than just the immediate context. But the immediate context helps you understand uh, why Paul may, uh, would make a statement as he does. And uh, particular with 1 Corinthians 13, which we're going to look at tonight, the, there, there is a, a section of it, or maybe a large chunk of it, that there's debate as to whether or not it actually is a hymn. So uh, he's pulling in a liturgical song in order to boister his argument. All right, so uh, we should look at the text. And actually, we should back up just a little bit. <laughs> Not this far. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Um, let me jump to 13, and then we'll just back up a little bit. All right, so uh, just as a recap, you note that in chapter 11, Paul, after talking about head coverings, um, he talks about uh, these special gifts within the congregation. And we talked last week. You can go back and look at that lesson. Here, I think I can. There we go. Um, that the, he, he likens the Christian church and the local congregation as a body. And within the body, there are many members, and each of the members has its, has its purpose, its, its function. Right? And that doesn't mean that all members are equal in terms of um, their role within the congregation. But all the members um, belong, right, and have their purpose. So um, you can see that right here in verse 29 on your screen. Are all prophets, apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers or miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? All right. Uh, again, he's pointing out that there is distinction, right, and that God, and actually, as he said in verse 28, God has appointed these. In the church, so he's ordained, he's set up the, the order of the church um, for the benefit of one another, which leads us right into chapter thirteen. So uh, chapter thirteen again sometimes is just pulled out, and I'll just scroll there. You can see, uh, probably even recognize it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. So this is a famous love chapter. Um, but this conversation about love is actually directly related to both the prophets, those who consider themselves prophets in the Corinthian congregation, and also those who could speak in tongues, and talking about the role of those gifts within the congregation. Uh, and it appears that they were using them as signs of not just authority, but um, status, right? So that those who could speak in tongues were like the super members, and those who could um, do prophecy were were more highly regarded, uh, and Paul's point is those gifts are nothing apart from love. So uh, we actually should read it. 
So, it's not a long chapter. Um, and we are going to break it down into three parts, but I think uh, we'll just read the chapter. So this is New King James Version. And uh, I see you there, Tim, Eileen, and Grace, all good with me. Mom, I guess. <laughs> Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become, a sound, become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now, abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. All right. Uh, it's, such a, it's such a poetic a poetic reading. Yeah, I see quite a few folks. Oh, well, maybe the watch party will help folks catch us here. Um, so three parts. And... I'm trying to figure out exactly how to break this down. I think we have to do a little bit of introduction, actually, uh, before we dig in. So, um, we talked about the analogy of the body last week. And the gifts of the church. All right, here we go. Um, so, this is from uh, Dr. Lockwood's commentary. And I think, I think he gets it right. All right. So, I'm just going to read this to introduce the reading. And then, then we'll break it down. The harmonious functioning of Christ's body the vital oil which keeps, keeps every ligament working smoothly is supplied by Christian love. Without love, even the most extraordinary gift is worthless. Mere sound and fury signifying nothing, <laughs> to quote Macbeth. Thus, Paul's great discourse on love forms the heart of his discussion of the gifts of grace. Because the concern of chapter 12 that each part of the body should show loving care for all the others so that when one suffers, all should suffer together, and when one is honored, all should rejoice together. Chapter 12, verse 24 to 26. And it casts its beams ahead into chapter 14, where Paul will encourage the church to exercise the gifts of tongue, tongues and prophecy in loving mutual upbuilding. We talked about um, like the building of a house. Viewed even more broadly, this is what I think is really helpful. Viewed even more broadly, it could be said that chapter 13 crystallizes and encapsulates one of Paul's chief concerns from the outset. All the congregation's problems are symptomatic of a lack of love. The congregation's splintering into factions, chapters 1 through 4. The Corinthians' tolerance of gross sin, chapters 5 and 6. You remember the man um, who had married his mother-in-law. Their indulgence and sacrificial meat, regardless of the damage to the brothers and sisters, chapters 8 through 10, and their divisions at the Lord's Supper, chapter 11. Paul's consistent teaching has been that faith in Christ, crucified, chapter 2, is always active in love. That's Galatians 5. In all his epistles, his ethical admonitions, that is how to live, have as their heart Jesus' command to love one another, John 13, which is, indispensable for the life of the church. Quote, without it, that is love, the Christian graces are disgraced. Quote uh, Bruner. 
Christians dare not place their spiritual gifts at the disposal of a personal quest for power or prestige. The performance of works not motivated by faith and love will incur the Lord's censure, I never knew you, Matthew 7. All right, now, uh, Paul's concept of love. All right, this word love here is actually kind of um, curious. You've, you've probably heard a sermon or two or Bible class um, on the New Testament, uh, words for love, you know, uh, pulling from the Greek, right? Eros and philia. Uh, and then this word for love, of course, is agape. Um, but this, this is unique to the New Testament. The Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek um, Old Testament, only uses agape 19 times, and almost all of them are in the Song of Solomon. <laughs> so those have to do um, with the lover's desire for his or her beloved, right? So 11 out of 19 times are from the Song of Solomon, which is interesting in the Old Testament. Um, only, in the New, only in the New Testament does agape take on its specific Christian coloration as a self-sacrificial love for one another which is inspired by God's love for us in Christ. See John 3, 16, of course, and Romans 5. We love because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4. All right? So um, the word here for love is not this kind of modern, sentimental type of love that uh, <laughs> you see, you know, on the television. I mean, it's not, it's not uh, erotic love in that sense. Um, but it is actually, you know, it's not romantic love, I guess is a good way to say it. Um, it's not self-seeking love either, like needing your, your needs fulfilled, right? It's actually the complete opposite. So the agape, at least how it's used by Paul and in the New Testament, is, yes, it begins in the self. It doesn't begin in the self. It actually is, is flipped. It's, everything is about serving the other. Uh, and this is really helpful because um, the opposite of love, of this kind of love, is actually sin. Right now, usually think of sin as um, in regards to uh, breaking your relationship to God, right? So sin is to be turned away from God, for example, or turned away from his word, or to go against his commands, right? Um, But sin is also, I mean, you sin against one another, and the sin against your neighbor is to not love, right? Because this love that's talking about here is not... um, you know, just again, emotionalism or something like that, but it is to serve the neighbor in the way that God in Christ has loved you, that has gave his life for you. So to sin against them is to neglect them in their need, for example, right? Or to lord over them um, your skills or abilities, as is the case here in Corinth. And that's what is sinful then, is being selfish, right? Not just um, turned away from God, but selfishly considering your own needs above the needs of your neighbor. All right. So the opposite of love is selfishness or sin. We could say it that way too. Um, and now, <laughs> of course, uh, the Christian church doesn't necessarily, at least not the one here in the U.S., and I think probably it's been common uh, here and there throughout all time, uh, the, the concept of love is actually being used today as a cover for sin. Ah rather than um, to actually care for the neighbor, it's the opposite. To show Christian love um, is to uh, give them the freedom to live and act in the way that they want um, in, in uh, what in contrast um, to what the Bible says. All right. So um, this is even the case, you know, we're accused in particular um, because we're what I would call a Bible-believing, you know, conservative uh, tradition by those who have a kind of, what do you want to say, liberal view, I guess is the right word, will say that we are, we are unloving because we claim to have like the corner on the truth, something like that. Um, well, to tolerate doctrinal error, that is uh, false teaching in regards to God's word, is actually sinful. <laughs> so it would be unloving to allow those who have rejected God's word to continue in that, right? Uh, to not, to not uh, seek to correct them, to bring them to repentance. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of ways that this kind of spins out. I, in my experience, one of the more common ways is that people talk a lot about motives and not action. 
So they thought, you know, my heart was in the right place, but my, you know, and they maybe even will acknowledge that their actions didn't necessarily uh, convey what they, what they intended. Um, but they'll say because their heart was in the right place, then their actions were, you know, excusable. But that's actually unlovely too, <laughs> because this is a love that is active. It's not a love that is um, just, uh, again, a, 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 what an emotion or a state of being or even uh, an understanding of relationship. But this love is a love that gives, that does, that um, believes, as Paul will, will confess here in a few moments. Uh, and again, it's all rooted, again, in the love of Christ for his church. I don't think First John 4, as I mentioned, or, or John 3.16, you know by heart where Christ, uh, for God so loved, agapeed his, the world, right, his creation, that he gave his only begotten son into death, namely, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, yeah, so don't use love as an excuse um, to, what, to allow people to continue in sin, right? Uh, especially, you know, those who you have the authority to correct, see your children, um, or a sibling, um, you know, where you actually have probably at least, if not authority, um, uh, there's a trust relationship there where you can actually bring some correction. Um, but also um, those who go against God's word. It's actually unlovely, unlovely for them to reject the word of Christ, who is love, by the way. Uh, so this is sometimes called uh, the royal road the royal road of Christian love. And again, it's marked by self, self-sacrificial service uh, with fidelity to Christ and his word. Think about how Jesus says it in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? Or I'm um, talking about the, the good shepherd, the loving, the loving shepherd who and feeds the flock, referring to the pastors. All right. So um, as we look here at the, at the reading, we're going to look at it in three blocks. Uh, so the first, verses one through three, I think are, we might categorize as the necessity of love, right? And that's what Paul's trying to communicate to the church in Corinth, that they've, they've lost that loving feeling. <laughs> I saw Top Gun again the other day, just on a whim. Um, then the second part, which will be verses four through six, is talking about the character of that love. So what the love looks like or how it acts. And then the last part, so that'll be verses um, eight through 13, show um, how love endures or is permanent, all right? And actually transcends even faith and hope, <laughs> which we'll talk about when we get to that. Yeah, good to see you there, Bonnie. I see you joined on my, uh, on my wall, so... Good to have you, and uh, let's keep going. All right, so, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I always thought that was a little bit strange. I was like, what? What is he talking about here? Well, that's because I hadn't read it in context, um, and the argument of chapter 12 uh, was about the those who said or boasted in their ability to speak in tongues, okay? <laughs> so that's what he's responding to. If I speak, even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, which is interesting. Um, there's some there's some speculation as to whether or not there was like a supernatural, I I don't know, some kind of supernatural thing happening. Um, maybe it happened in the in the pagan worship. I think that's more likely, is that they thought of themselves. You know, they were really worshiping with demons, but they thought of you know as they made connection with the spiritual realm um, in that pagan worship that they were worshiping with angels. Um, now, of course, we confess that every time we gather around the Lord's table, um, we even say this with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven, right? With archangels and um, there's different ways that it's said in the preface to, to um, the Sanctus, right? But then the Sanctus is the song of the angels in heaven, right? The vision from the throne room, Isaiah 6, right? Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth is full of your glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, all right? And um, so, I mean, we do believe <laughs> that we speak with the angels. There is a thought maybe that the, the special tongues um, 
wasn't just that they spoke in foreign languages, like we talked about from Acts chapter 2, but that they spoke in some kind of spiritual tongue. Um, what's interesting is that uh, the Reformation churches, uh, the churches of the Reformation, I should say, um, largely held that uh, Hebrew was the language of creation. But I don't know. That's speculation. But here's his point, okay? So, again, he's responding to those who claim gifts of prophecy or speaking in tongues um, as being making them superior to others in the congregation. And his point is, if even if you could do this, or even if I do this, if I don't have love, and again, it's that agape, that self-serving love, then all of my talking is like a sounding brass, and we'll talk about it in a second here, and a clanging cymbal, or a screeching cymbal is that probably even a better translation. Um, a sounding brass, uh, there are, there's some evidence that in the uh, pagan temples, there's like an acoustical device uh, made out of brass um, that they would use like to amplify the sound. So think of like a horn, right? And, and the church of Corinth is actually known, uh, according to Pliny the Elder, um, he records that uh, they were known for their brass work. Uh, that in, in Corinth, brass was more expensive than gold or silver. That's interesting. And um, so maybe, he, again, these were people who were part of uh, pagan worship there um, at the Temple of Dionysus. And what's another one? Sibella was another one. Um, and also they, they would use these, um, these symbols. But I, I love the idea that it's, you know, uh, I think ESV probably translate this as a, as a noisy gong. Yeah, noisy gong. <laughs> Uh, again, used in, in like a pagan worship service, just just making a making a noise. This is like the the word here for noisy is like like the roar uh, of the sea. Right? That's another way that it's used. And and this word for clanging is used for like when the uh, the wine press is is reaching its limit and it starts screeching. So that's interesting as well, right? So the, neither of these are pleasant sounds. That's his point. And if I have prophetic powers, remember that's the other conflict, right? The ability to to speak the future. Old King James says, tinkling symbol. <laughs> tinkling. Well, whatever. I like screeching. Um, yeah, you get the idea though. I mean, tinkling is like, well, just ineffective. Doesn't really have any point. All right. Uh, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, remember that was a big deal talked about that back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? There were those who claimed to have superior knowledge and to understand and to be able to speak of the truth. And if I have all faith, that is, you know, I believe everything. Um, And here, we'll talk about this in a second, so as to remove mountains. But again, have not this self-serving love, I am nothing. Um, So, I mean, this, we might call somebody like this is like a Mr. Know-it-all, right? He's got all the answers. He knows his Bible forward and backward. Uh, he's memorized the catechism. Maybe even the large catechism <laughs> can recite, um, can confess. And then um, as he sees his neighbor in need, he neglects him. right? Or he lords this over him. He boasts over him, as we'll look at in the next section. right? Um, then he's nothing. That's actually, um, that actually destroys or rends apart the body, um, the congregation, by not doing all things for the benefit of the other. I think that's the really important way to understand this word love. Um, This is still true today, of course, in the Christian congregation. Um, um, If you insist upon your own way, and it's not actually going to benefit the rest of the the body, um, then you're being unloving. That includes a pastor who says, this is how it is, it's my way or the highway, that kind of thing. Um, But it could be another in the congregation who says, you know, um, think of an example without shaming anyone. Oh, well, pastor, um, we can't ever sing that hymn again, right? Because I don't like it, which has happened to me. Um, and ironically, if I remember right, that same situation, uh, you know, I'd have somebody else say to me, um, that was, that was the, exactly the right hymn I needed to hear today, right? So you see there where, uh, where your own opinion, your own preference um, can get in the way of, of love for neighbor, that confession of faith that the hymn is um, for your neighbor and the way that it comforted them. So, good. 
Um, by the way, Bonnie, I see you're on my wall. If you uh, click through to, to the church and you watch it with using the church um, version, you'll see the, the comment threads in there. All right. Um, let's see. Yeah, so uh, there's in, in having you know, this gift of speaking in tongues um, if, you, if it isn't in service to your neighbor. All right. There's no point in knowing everything, um, believing everything, being able to even speak with prophecy if it is not um, for the building up of the body of Christ, if it isn't for love or exercised uh, for the benefit of your neighbor. All right. Um, this, this, and so as to remove mountains uh, is actually really helpful because a common accusation, of course, is that, you know, Paul, untimely born, who uh, was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle well, on the Damascus road after his ascension into heaven, right? And then uh, Paul records that Jesus himself catechized him uh, while he was in Damascus, uh, appearing to him, you know, in his resurrected and ascended uh, body, all right? Um, but that, that poses some problems for people because it's only Paul. We have to take Paul at his word, right? Um, but what's interesting here is that Paul has this direct, I mean, he directly references something that Jesus says uh, that's recorded for us in Matthew 17, uh, also in Mark 11, uh, which uh, we just studied probably, what, a week ago in our daily prayer, right? Jesus said to them, uh, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you, right? So remember that, faith like a mustard seed. And Paul's clearly referring directly to that saying of Jesus here. But the point was, is faith alone, um, it may save, um, but faith that isn't acted out in love is nothing. Um, that's very similar to, say, uh, James, right? Faith without works is dead. If, if the love of Christ, which is given to you, um, it does not have its fruit, then uh, you're like what we heard on Sunday, a diseased tree. Okay. All right, so now we've got those two. And then he adds kind of a third one. Um, and this one, again, is, you know, kind of like um, what we hear on Ash Wednesday for Matthew 6, for example, right? With the, you know, when you, when you um, give charity, when you give alms, uh, don't sound the trumpet as the hypoc hypocrites do in the, in the synagogues, that kind of thing, right? So he's going to use that example. If I give away all I have, or maybe the rich young ruler would be a good example here too. And if I deliver up my body to be burned. Um, now this expression, some um, manuscripts have it just simply as saying, deliver up my body to death, or just deliver up my body. This to be burned um, is not well testified to uh, in the manuscripts. Um, that doesn't mean we can't have it there. Um, I do like the reference because it, it, of course, makes us think of, uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Um, who are thrown into the fiery furnace, right? Um, and there, there is some maybe hypothesis. There's a hypothesis that later editors <laughs> added this expression um, because of the way that Christians were being martyred, uh, which happened after the time of Paul and after the writing of this epistle. Um, that many that Christians would would actually be not burned at the stake, but um, um, you know, like during the time of Nero, for example, which would be probably ten years later, they would actually oh, they were used like human candles. Actually, they would use, uh, he would he would stake them and then and burn the Christians to light the roads in Rome. Just terrible stuff. Um, but I think Paul uh, may be still referring to his own personal experience, as we know that he. Uh, suffered all sorts of bodily, he had all sorts of bodily experience, negative experiences, sufferings, um, not just the thorn in his flesh, but the way that um, he was flogged and beaten and that sort of thing. That if whatever happens to your body, even if you give away your, your body, you know, you're willing to, uh, to die a martyr's death, but if it isn't for love, that is self-sacrificial love for your neighbor, it gains you nothing, right? Because what do you actually want to gain? You've already have salvation. You're, you have faith in Christ. You're already saved, right? So if you give everything away, you give away your, even your very life, it needs to be in service for your neighbor because you would gain not nothing then, but you would gain your neighbor. Hmm. All right. 
So again, remember, uh, I said we're going to look at this in three sections. So this is the necessity of love, right? Love is necessary for the speaking of tongues um, to have any benefit, um, prophetic powers and, and wisdom and knowledge to, to have any get, have any purpose. Um, it needs to be exercised in love. Even um, self-sacrifice or charitable giving, if it isn't done in love, it gains you nothing. Okay? So necessity. Uh, and then we move on to the character of this love. All right, so I've already said it's a self-sacrificial love. It's that special word, agape, right? Um, but here you'll see, um, you know, Paul kind of spin that out, right? And so there's kind of many expressions and there's different ways to understand this. So love is patient. Um, oh, we're on ESV. We should go back to e uh, New King James. Ah, that's better. <laughs> yeah, patient. Um, I like long-suffering. Um, long-suffering is has, has a rich, I mean, even though this is from the Greek, uh, as it's used in the Septuagint, um, it's connected, um, well, it's, it's put this way, long-tempered. And it's a characteristic of God, actually. The God um, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You've heard that, right, from Romans. This is the character of God, that he waits patiently. Um, Oh, so this is really important to note. Um, when we talk about love, agape love, who are we talking about? <laughs> well, Christians imperfectly, right? Um, but actually, Jesus, right? God is love. And in this, the love of God is made manifest that he gave his only son, right? right. So the love of God is known to us in the self-sacrificial death of Jesus for sins, all right, for you. and. Uh, but that is actually God's nature, is that he's loving. So this is actually describing God, not just the love of the Christian. Love is long-suffering, all right? Um, and is kind. That's, that's a fair enough word. Love does not envy. Um, hmm, that word for envy is interesting. Um, let's be another word for envy. I think ESV translates that as, no, it says envy. I think a good word there is jealous, right? And uh, here's another quote from uh, Shakespeare in uh, Othello. Jealousy is described as a green-eyed monster. Like Shakespeare, so smart. Yeah, green-eyed. Um, think, what is green? Yeah, money. <laughs> so um, those who are envious never are content with the gifts that they've received. That's what it means to be jealous or to be envious. Always eyeing what others have and even trampling upon them to get what you want, right? Um, so it's listed all in the works of the flesh of Galatians 5. Um, that's at war against the Spirit, all right? So love does not envy. Um, love does not, I love this translation, so good, does not parade itself. Um, you could translate that differently. You could say does not brag. How did ESV does it? Does not boast. Okay, so boast or brag or parade itself. Yeah. That's beautiful. Uh, and is not puffed up. I think that's self-evident, what that means. Um, arrogant would be another way to translate that, I think. Let's look here. Yeah, arrogant in ESV. And then um, it does not behave rudely. Um, that expression maybe is a little bit veiled. How do they translate it here? Yeah, just rude. Um, what verse is that? That is verse 5. Yeah, I looked this up. Hmm. Um, the verb denotes behavior not in accordance with proper bearing manner or deportment. In uh, chapter 7, the verb was used of the man who lacked the gift of celibacy and so would be filled with improper lust until he married. Paul counsels him to marry. Um, the noun version of this word, this rude behavior, is um, used to describe the shameful and indecent behavior of the homosexuals in Romans 1, 27 and the shameful or embarrassing parts that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 12 and also Revelation 16. All right, so, um, yeah, does not behave rudely, expose himself. Maybe we could translate it that way uh, to be a little bit more, less uh, veiled, okay? Uh, does not seek its own, self-seeking. What's another way to translate that? Insist on its own way. All right, we talked about that. How can you love your neighbor and demand your own um, your own way. All right, so no, no demanding. 
I'm only asking and listening. And, I, you know, it's not easy as a pastor, uh, especially because there are some things that uh, I'm under the obligation by the Lord Jesus, <laughs> right, to be and to do. Um, but on the other hand, there are many places where I think I have opportunity to give um, in a sense of uh, um, I'm flexible, right? And, and there can be confidence. Um, and the only way that happens is if, one, you speak. <laughs> yeah, vaunteth. Thanks, Eileen. Love that King James. Thanks for following along with that. Um, no, the only way for me um, you know, to, to be flexible is if I hear from you and we can have a conversation and um, you can make the case and I have to listen. That doesn't mean I have to do what you say or, or I have to agree, but, but at least to listen and not and just only insist on my own way. All right, so that's what he's talking about. Uh, it wouldn't be lovely as a pastor um, to just say, here's what we're going to do, and if you don't like it, tough luck, you can leave. That kind of thing. All right. Uh, is not provoked. Uh, what's that? Is, it is not irritable in ESV. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair translation. You know, doesn't get all riled up. Thinks no evil. Or, hmm. Um, I think a better translation would be, doesn't keep a record of wrong, right? An account of evil. Um, what do we call that? Resentful. That's a good translation from the, uh, in the ESV. These, this would be holding a grudge. That would be an example of this. Um, holding on to someone else's sin or thinking evil of them rather than forgiving them. That would be unlovely, right? Again, Paul's just describing what this love looks like. Um, does not rejoice in iniquity. That's a kind of an old word. Um, but it's, it's unrighteousness is what it is. Adikaya. Adikaya, yeah. Um, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Doesn't rejoice in other people's sin or their unrighteousness. Again, we mentioned this towards the beginning of the class. You know, uh, we're sometimes accused, being a relatively conservative, Bible-believing church, of being unlovely, unloving, um, because we don't um, look the other way when it comes to, what, moral indecency. Sexual sin is probably the big one, uh, especially same-sex relationships. We're supposed to look the other way and just love them. Well, it's actually unlovely to say to someone, and we don't even have to do same-sex. We could just do um, those who are living as if they're married, um, and yet they haven't actually embraced the gift of marriage. So they live together. They're presumably then also having sexual relations, and yet they've denied God's blessing. They don't even desire his blessing, or they've delayed it. Right? It would be unlovely for us to, say, to not say to them, hey, guess what? Jesus has a great gift for you. Uh, it's, it's called a, a, the blessing. It's called holy matrimony. Right? And we, you want to hear God joining you together, not just your voluntary act, but actually the declaration of God, the commitment that he makes to you to support you in your marriage. Um, let's start this off on the right foot. Right? So um, that's not a popular opinion, but I think maybe it just has a little bit to do with the way we can, that we speak. Sometimes we just speak in terms of the negative, like thou shalt not, cut it out, um, stop being an idiot, that kind of thing, <laughs> uh, rather than making a case and showing them that it's out of care and concern and, and really love for them. All right. Um, I had a situation in a congregation. Um, and actually, they're both deceased now, so I, I'm not uncomfortable. Well, and it was very public too, so I'm not uncomfortable sharing this. But um, I had a couple that were um, living in adultery. They were both committing adultery with their spouses uh, together. And um, the congregation, when I first arrived, told me to just look the other way. This is my congregation in Indiana. And the, the pastor who had been serving there as vacancy said, yeah, you know what, I, I just decided that I'd let you deal with it. I'm like, okay, thanks a lot, right? Because now for the last, whatever it had been, nine months or a year or something, um, they basically thought it was okay with this congregation. Well, kind of okay. It wasn't great, but they were going to to tolerate it or suffer it. And I said, look, you can't take adultery. You can't, you can't build a relationship upon adultery. Because you're not, you're, you don't have God's blessing, right? He's joined you to someone else, and you say you don't love them anymore, 
but God hasn't said that. You said that, right? So you're bringing sin into this relationship, and you um, try to build a relationship on on sin. Well, it turns out, uh, long story short, is that they did find another Christian church, quote-unquote Christian, I would say, <laughs> that was willing uh, to look the other way and even to bless them in their both divorce and then marriage. So they blessed the divorce and bless, gave them marriage. And actually, the marriage fell apart very quickly. He drank himself um, to death. So uh, it was a terrible situation, and uh, horrible, and I, I don't feel vindicated about it. I, I wish um, that they had heeded you know, the word of Jesus and, and repented um, and were restored to their spouses, but um, they chose to continue in their sin. It was really terrible. Um, but again, the way you communicate that, I think, is the key. Um, well, no, it isn't, it isn't the only key. You communicate it as well as you can, right? But for them to believe the word of Jesus takes the gift of the Holy Spirit working through that word, all right? Um, so they have to receive the Spirit. Um, the Spirit has to overcome their sinful heart and their hardness of heart, um, if it is as well, which is, that's a hard thing to say, but that's certainly what the scripture says. All right. Um, so rather than rejoice in someone's sin, it rejoices in the truth. And say, Like I said, marriage, it's a great gift. God wants it for you. Um, he wants to restore you to your marriage, for example, with that couple in adultery, or um, you know, the, for the for those living together outside of marriage, to say, you know, God wants actually wants you to be joined together. Presumably, <laughs> um, you commit; He'll bless that, right? Uh, and He'll give you strength. And, and given that you're in God's Word, you'll receive the comfort and nourishment you need in order for that marriage to be um, long-standing and to be. Uh, not only a blessing to you, to one another, but that you also then be a blessing for your children and for your neighbors um, within that that household. All right. Um, so instead of that, rejoice in the truth, right? And what is truth? Well, again, the question is, who is truth? There's only truth, and it's Jesus, right? It's that we walk with Him. Um, truth is not something, you know, contrary to public popular opinion today. That truth is not. Um, you know, just assessing data and then coming together, you know, coming up with what you think is your truth, you know, whatever that might look like. Um, you could think about like the response to COVID-19, you know. Um, some people say this is the truth. Other people say that's the truth. And I'm like, yeah, well, there's a lot of data. Um, there's probably truth in there somewhere. I'm not exactly sure what it is. You know, I don't know who's, who's being honest, completely honest, um, who's manipulating data. Um, or who just, just doesn't understand it. I'm not sure I completely understand uh, what's going on. And so it's really hard to know what is true. Um, you know what is true, according to God's word, right? As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All right, so this is all a, a description of, of Jesus, uh, who is the, the image of God um, in human flesh, as we see. Adam restored, if you like. Uh, and then, as well, as we'll talk about, as the Spirit is given to every Christian, then they, bear, they manifest this kind of love um, according to the working of the Spirit in their heart. Okay? Uh, and then the, verse 7, this is a little bit different as far as, it's not exactly describing the character of love, um, but it shows how love kind of works, right? It bears all, you, know, you don't really have to say all things, but because it's just ponta, right, in Greek, just all stuff. <laughs> Love bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all. Now this is kind of an interesting expression. and I probably should uh, pull this out kind of separately. Um, this is really Paul talking about what I, what I think is, you know, they're like staccato phrases, like gunshot fires here, you know, or automatic rifle or something. Um, and I don't, I don't think we need to make a, a lot about it, but he's describing... Um, loves, well, he's leading us into verse 8, right? Loves, I guess the word would be tenacity, the way that it, it holds on. Um, bears all things, that is, puts up with other people. <laughs> I think that's pretty obvious, right? Um, in other circumstances, again, which try their patient. That goes back to verse 4 about long-suffering, right? Um, and so I think Paul also probably is saying, look, I'm putting up with you. Right? So that's in the background. Um, the second, believe and hope, these have to do with um, impermanent things. All right? So both belief and hope are necessary now 
uh, until the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, right? So, uh, and this will be connected to the, the last clause, right? Um, faith, hope, and love, um, these, the, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So, uh, and that's the reason why faith and hope uh, pass away, but love remains. Because love is the relationship of God to his people, and love will be known fully on the last day. When uh, we live in the loving embrace of, of, of God, and we live in love for him as well. All right. So to say that love believes all things doesn't mean that it's just gullible. I, I don't think that's what Paul's getting after. Rather, it's, it's a, a, a love that believes d- during all things. Be maybe another way of saying this. Despite everything that's happening, it continues to believe. Um, or you continue to love despite the way that someone behaves towards you. You know, believing in this love. That would be a good way to think of this. Um, same thing with hope. What Hope in what? Well, hope in God. Our hope in God persists even, we never give up our hope, even as it seems everything's happening around us, you know, steeples are crumbling, right? Um, or people are dying. So, so hope and um, faith persist through all things, despite all things. All right? That's the way to understand those, I think. Um, and then endurance, of course. Um, that's a theme that you'll see that that you see in First Thessalonians, where um, was it First Thessalonians one, right? Where endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So endurance comes from hope. Um, all right, so that's good. I don't know what the dog's barking at. Hopefully, you don't hear him too much. So again, um, the first part we looked at uh, up through verse three had to do with um, what the necessity of love. I think that's what we said, right? Yeah, necessity of love. Now we just looked at the character of love. Now we're going to talk about the permanence of love. How love sticks around. All right. So, verse 8 uh, through 10. How are we doing on time? Ooh, talking a lot. I didn't know that we'd have this much. All right, well, that's good. Love never fails. That's a great way to start, right? But these things that are dividing you, like prophecies, they're going to go away, uh, which they did. Uh, we've talked about that, I think, last week, but it's worth rem- rem- uh, reminding you today is that a lot of the apostolic gifts, so prophecies, speaking in tongues, healings, um, these things, they were temporary uh, as witnesses to the truthfulness of the Christian church, right? But then they passed away, right? And, and the word remained. Um, and namely, love remained, love for one another. Uh, same with the tongues. So prophecies go away, tongues go away, they will cease. Um, even knowledge, um, that's, what kind of knowledge is that? That's in verse 8. Uh, or is superseded or will cease. Um, this is like a superior kind of knowledge or a unique knowledge that was only given then. Um, you know. I'm trying to think, like like uh, in matters of interpretation or some of the connections that St. Saint Paul makes in his epistles in regards to, uh, think of like Galatians 4 with Hagar and Sarah, right? Um, you don't see those kind of interpretations any longer, but those are uniquely given to him as an apostle. Unique knowledge to understand that that was given as a witness, you know, with the two mountains and the two women um, to show uh, the distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. All right. Um, so what we know is only partial anyway, which is what he says here, right? And, uh, what we prophesy is only partial, but when that, which is, and, ah, despise this translation when they do this, we've talked about this before many chapters ago. Yeah. Here ESV does the same thing. They use the word perfect. Um, again, this is the teleos and, and Jesus uses the, the, the perfect, um, tense of this at the cross when he says it is finished right it's the same word so um but when that which is completed right not not we're not going to be aristotelian here and talk about some kind of metaphysical perfection we're talking about the completion of all things right which is on the last day when the when the completion has come then that which is in part will be done away right so the things 
that are needed temporarily will pass away when the complete thing comes. All right. I think if I had anything else here that I wanted to talk about with that. Yeah, and actually, um, maybe one way to think about this, at least in my in my understanding, uh, that Paul maybe doesn't just have the um, last day in mind, but perhaps he also, you know, has the 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 development of testament and the the way that the the canon is closed by Saint John uh, with Revelation that no nothing can be added or taken away from this book, referring to um, the collection, the canon of the New Testament. Um you know, that, that that is the complete testimony of God, that we don't need new revelation now um, that, you know, all the way through John's apocalypse have been given. Um, that might be one way to understand this too. There's no need for these prophecies and tongues now that we have the scriptures. I think that would be helpful. All right. Um, then this, I think, pretty easy, um, pretty easy metaphor to understand, or two metaphors back to back, right? Um, you know, when we begin, we're like children. We talk like children. We think like children. We act like children. <laughs> All sorts of the childish patterns. Um, and then these things go away when we grow up, right? When we grow up, we put away the childish things. So um, again, he's talking about the speaking in tongues and the prophecy. These things are necessary now, but as we grow in faith, hope, and love, well, really, yeah, faith, hope, and love, which comes here in verse 13, um, those actually can go away. They're not needed, right? Because we have, we have a, a sure testimony, the prophetic scriptures, as he calls them. Um, and then 12, kind of a similar expression, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Right? You've heard that. Um, but then face to face. Now that may be, of course, that really uh, strikes me as pointing forward to the last day, right? Um, or actually, as we studied last week in our daily prayer, um, remember Jesus said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven, right? So again, the heavenly, um, in the heavenly vision, we'll see God face to face. No one can see God's face and live apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So again, uh, what we have now is, is partial, but then we will know just as I am known, that is known by God the Father. So we live by faith. We live, uh, hopefully, um, trusting in the mercy of God and in his steadfast love that has been revealed to us in his son Jesus. Right? But, but our experience doesn't necessarily correspond to that. I don't know if you can hear the dog. <laughs> He's barking at something. I don't know what's going on out there. Um, our experience doesn't correspond to what we believe always. Right? So like right now, um, you could look around and say, well, has God forgotten us? Is, does he not care that we are perishing? You know, that uh, quite literally, um, you know, in, in our case at St. John, uh, we have half the congregation that we're in regular attendance have not attended since um, the lockdown. Uh, we have people who are locked up for fear um, that, you know, God, and, and maybe even are starting to think that God has forgotten them. Um, we're looking at a pretty significant financial crisis um, that isn't creeping up on us. We know it's coming. And even with uh, the aid of the federal government with the PPP loan, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of money and that, uh, that we're, we're overspending uh, really every week, every month. And has God forgotten us? Uh, well, maybe we've forgotten him. So uh, it isn't that God has forgotten us, but that when our faith falters, um, he is still faithful. So even as we are faithless, he is faithful to us. And he restores that faith in us, um, sometimes through suffering, actually, and uh, giving us over to that which we believe, right? So we believe he's forgotten us, and so he acts as if <laughs> he's, for we've, he's forgotten us for a time. Um, think of like the prodigal son, right? Who wishes his father dead, in effect. And takes his inheritance and goes and squanders it. And it's not until he's lost it all and he's hit, so I guess what we call rock bottom, that he repents and he returns to his father who is living the whole time despite him wanting to be dead. All right. So, um, yeah, we're always known. And God is, as we saw here, he never fails. 
Um, he is loving, long-suffering, and kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He doesn't behave rudely. He thinks no evil. He doesn't hold our sin to account against us. He doesn't rejoice in our sins, but rejoices in the truth and waits and hopes and knows that we will uh, be restored to him. All right. So uh, again, we mentioned this before, and I love this expression, and you probably even know it by heart, but now abide, that is, um, dwell, faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. That is not to say that, that faith and hope are not great, um, but, but only love is, it will persist into eternity. There will be no need for faith when you see God face to face or hoping for heaven when you're living in heaven, right? So you see how now these are wonderful gifts. Oh, by the way, all three, faith, hope, and love, they're all gifts of the Holy Spirit. So remember, we've been talking about the gifts of grace, so speaking in tongues, and uh, the gifts of prophecy, um, but even, even great acts of charity. All of these things um, are workings of the Spirit, right? But they're actually uh, gifts that are dependent upon these three faith, hope, and love, um, the great gifts of the Spirit. I think, I think the Roman Catholics have a special name for them. I can't I'm trying to remember what they are. I think they call them, oh yeah, they call them theological virtues, as if you could develop them or you could uh, build them up in yourself. But no, these are gifts to you from God. He gives you faith. Think third article of the Creed. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, right? Um, you, hope has an object, right? Um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ um, uh, and his righteousness, right? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, right? Um, so hope is grounded um, in Jesus, who has been revealed to us. Love, love is only known in, in, in the love of the Son uh, for all humanity, right? For all creation. The love of the Father in giving his Son for you and for all people, right? So without God's revelation to you, you don't even have anything to believe in or hope for, um, or you don't even know what love is. Um, at least not this agape love, this self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Ah, good, good point, Eileen. Um, faith, hope, and caritas, yes. Um, the reason why New King, or King, Old King James does not have love but shifts to charity here, even though it's the same word for love that we've had through the whole thing, is because of that theological um, foundation. Let's see if I have it here. The expression theological virtues, referring to these three, familiar from Roman Catholic theology, uh, is a handy designation for the Roman triad, or Pauline triad, as long as you understand them as gifts. So in, in the Roman Catholic understanding, um, charity is is giving to the poor. And that's the way they, that's the Latin, the Latin word is caritas. And that's how they translate agape from the Greek into the Latin as caritas. Um, it's not, it, it, that does have a sense of self-giving, but would we say that um, Jesus, Jesus dying for the sins of the world shows the charity of God? I don't think we would use the word that way, right? So we want to be a little bit more precise. And again, because this Specific word, agape, is used like in 1 John 4, Romans 5, um, to describe Christ's death for sinners as loving. Um, I think, I don't think charity is probably the right translation there. I'm going to see if there's anything else on that. That's a good point. In a riddle. Uh, da, 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 da. Nope. Nope, because we've already talked about agape. So isn't that interesting? Yeah, they, they see them as virtues, um, ways of, you know, that these are things that Christians drum up in themselves. Um, they're fruits of, of man's character. But faith, hope, and love are all gifts from God. Um, gifts that we do not have apart from him giving them. Really important. Um, so even charity then, um, which is sacrificial love for the neighbor, as Paul said. Oh, where was this? Uh, back before. Yeah, um, go, give my goods to feed the poor. You see that in verse 3. Or even give my body to be burned. Um, that is a, is a gift, but it's, it's actually a fruit of the gift of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. All right, so something, um, it's not something natural to us, that we're nor naturally charitable people. That's why uh, 
what's the expression that we have? There's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> they always want something from you, right? There's always, there's always a, there's always a hook. There's a, there's, there's something going on in the background. Nobody, nobody is completely charitable. Well, and that's true. If it's not, if it's not done in faith, if it's not uh, a fruit of the work of the Spirit uh, in the Christian heart. Yeah. Um, now these three, faith, hope, and love, Paul puts together frequently uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we can't look at them all, um, but maybe I'll just give you a few of them, <laughs> just to impress you, I guess. Uh, faith, hope, and love are put together in Romans 5, 1 through 5, Galatians 5, 5 through 6, Ephesians 4, 2 through 5, Colossians 1, 4 through 5, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 1, those are Hebrews and 1 Peter being other writers. All right, so frequently in the Bible, these three are put together. So if you want to call them theological virtues, again, uh, understand them as good gifts that are given to you in Christ that then are exercised by you as a Christian, but they're not, they're not meritorious to you. They don't benefit you um, as far as you know, tickets to heaven or something like that. Um, they've been, they're for the benefit of your neighbor. Oh, that's, that's really important too, by the way. We've talked about love being self-service for neighbor, but even hopefulness. Um, you know, as you express your hopefulness, your trust in God, um, your faith, and then the hope that that gives you, um, that, is a, that is your witness to your neighbor. And actually, it's part of your love for your neighbor is to confess your faith to them, um, how you trust in God, trust in Christ, um, and how that gives you hope. Um, so, especially now, as um, you may be fearful, locked up, maybe you're not so fearful, and you're still you're going out, maybe you, have got, you wear a face mask all the time, maybe you don't, whatever, it, <laughs> whatever condition you're in at the moment, um, don't, don't lose sight of the fact that uh, you are Christ, Christ has died for you, um, he loves you, uh, he has promised you heaven because he's died for you. Your sins are forgiven and death cannot hold you. That is your hope. No matter what happens today or tomorrow, um, as, we sing in the, as we've been singing all week in our hymn for the week, right? Um, and God, I, 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 how's it go? And God, my faithful God, I trust when dark my road. You know, though these things overtake me, uh, you will not forsake me, right? Yeah, so that's your hope. And you confess that hope. Um, even confess that hope in the midst of COVID. You say, look, if I die tomorrow, the Lord has me. If the Lord grants me life, he's got me. I'm not going to act recklessly or irresponsibly because I have those around me whom God has given me to love, right? But if it's my time, he's going to take me. And, uh, and he'll take me home, right? So it's a hopeful <laughs> taking, not a, um, I die and I'm forever, whatever it is that you believe. Uh, and again, the greatest of these is love. Right? Not just loving for, for your neighbor, but the, but the love for your neighbor, which is an expression of the love that God has in Christ for you, which um, you will see face-to-face experience fully, completely, perfectly, if you want to use that word, uh, on the last day. It's really a, a, a brilliant chapter, but again, um, I don't want you to forget that this is all part of Paul's argument about um, how the Corinthian church is being divided over speaking in tongues and prophecy and maybe great acts of charity and, and, you know, given by the wealthy, um, that this is being used as a status symbol, uh, a way of, you know, separating, you know, the normal Christians from the higher Christians or something, the superior to the inferior in the congregation. And Paul's point is, no, if these things aren't in service to love, that is love for one another together, regardless of status or ability or gift, um, then they're actually worthless. And they're, because they're dividing and not gathering. So you'll see he'll come back to that here in chapter 14 when we talk about prophecy and tongues. So we'll get back to that next week. All right. Um, thanks for joining us. Look, we had good attendance. Um, good to have Bonnie and Eileen and Grace and Tim. Good to have you all here tonight. Um, and those of you who are watching this on delay, again, if you have questions or comments, um, feel free to post them in the thread on Facebook or on YouTube, and I'll respond to them as I have a uh, opportunity, or maybe next week, because we'll still be kind of on the same theme. All right. So Lord be with you tonight, and keep you safe.
We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.